Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 34. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. You can become a Patreon of Fun Ideas Productions, and if everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Alvin! The story of Ross Bagdasarian Sr., Liberty Records, Format Films, and The Alvin Show is out. Order your hardback, paperback, and ebook copies today on Amazon or at BearManorMedia.com. Thank you for watching me on Stu's show last week, bringing in Stu Showstack's highest ratings to date. Our guest today is an artist who loves underdog, and now he draws it for American Mythology's various underdog comic book series. Here he is, Matt Hansel. So, on the phone today I have Matthew Hansel. How are you? I am well. How are you? Fine. Good. So, I know you from being an underdog artist, but I mean, yes. you may have other artistic inclinations, but let's start with this. Uh, how did you get started as an artist, and what type of training have you had in uh, your lifetime? <laughs> yeah, um, I uh, have always wanted to be a cartoonist, um, for at least as long as I can remember. I, I was always fascinated with drawing and uh, uh, you know, making pictures, telling stories with pictures and whatnot. Um, and Underdog was just my favorite thing in the world uh, <laughs> as a kid growing up. I, I say my... My cartoon pedigree right now on uh, Facebook or Twitter, there's a thing, your comic book DNA that's going around, mm -hmm. and it's like four issues that really influence you growing up as a kid or whatever. And uh, I, I got made to thinking about my cartoon DNA, and a big part of my just comic book cartoon DNA is Underdog, the Ralph Bashke Spider-Man, and the <laughs> Adam West Batman. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's that's influenced a lot of my uh, my views on things. Uh, I was always a, a a compulsive doodler like most cartoonists were. I just always drew, you know, in school I would draw on the main part of the page and take notes in the margins instead of doing it the other way around like most people. Um, and uh, I just was fascinated with it. Everyone I know uh, growing up always told me you can't make a living being an artist and that was beaten into my head so much so that I always thought, well, I'll end up doing it as a side thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and to, to that end, my actual formal academic training is all in uh, journalism and political science. Oh, wow. Because uh, I was going to be a political cartoonist. Mm. And I figured if I was going to do that, I should really understand politics and government uh, and all that kind of stuff. And while I was in college, of course, like a lot of people, I had my own cartoon strip. I had a daily comic strip, and I was also an editorial cartoonist uh, and just fell in love with it, but got sidetracked for 15 years after grad school. Um, uh, working in our local government and if ever I needed something to convince me that I don't need to do an office job uh, and, that I <laughs> and that I really really uh, uh, loathe rules and regulations that seem random and arbitrary uh, and be, be a high level bureaucrat for 15 years and <laughs> that'll definitely teach you uh, teach you all that but wow. my, my entire purpose in doing all of that stuff, I always kept my eye on the prize. Everything I did, I tried to push through that filter of doing comics. Mm -hmm. um, 
so uh, journalism and political science are very writing intensive. And even though it's not fiction writing, writing is writing is writing. Can you get your point across? Are you telling an interesting story? Whatever. Um, And so I I credit a lot of my being able to write and tell stories and things like that because of, of journalism. And I think that's a big part of being uh, of being a cartoonist, um, and so I'm, I'm self-taught. I uh, mm-hmm. I bought every single book I could find on on cartooning and drawing, mm-hmm. uh, and and. Uh, one of the things going to college teaches you is how to academically approach a problem right. and basically how to self-study. I, I think I, I really think a big part of academia is teaching you how to think and how to study and how to analyze. Yep. And so I figured if I could do that with politics, I can certainly do that with art. And so I, <laughs> I approached with the same ferocity that I did my academic studies, my, my kind of self-discipline in art, and taught myself a variety of styles and really broke down you know uh people's approach to art and things like that uh really did deep dives on a couple different artists like uh jim apero and neil adams and jeff mcnelly and dick loker mm-hmm. um and uh and all of put all of that together uh and you know practice and draw incessantly <laughs> uh and and here you are <laughs> uh, here i am yeah now um and that was really long and rambly. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. We got an hour. We'll to, fix it. We have an hour to kill. No, we have we we have time to fill. Stretch, stretch, stretch. <laughs> Say more. No. Anyway, um, um, so uh, if you mentioning those guys like Neil Adams at Al, um, do you draw in their styles as well, or is it still come out like uh, underdog? <laughs> uh, no, I no, I I, I can um, actually right now I'm. Uh, I, uh, Neil Adams has a uh, Patreon that, that he does mm-hmm. where he doesn't show you how to draw like Neil Adams, but of course he's drawing like Neil yeah. Adams, so you kind of see how it happens. Who <laughs> but uh, he, he really shows you how he approaches art, including mm. how to trace photographs correctly, <laughs> how to use photographs correctly. Tracing? You know what? When you see him do it, you're like, that's why his art looks the way it does. Right. He, he shows you the camera's rolling. There's a 45-minute video of him doing it, uh, right. showing you exactly how to take a Ted Danson picture and turn him into a Batman. Right. Uh, <laughs> and another one, and another one, how to turn him into Bruce Wayne. I mean, it, it, and it's fantastic. It really oh. is. Well, the uh, reason great. the reason why I asked you that is because, like, I can draw Underdog uh, myself. Uh, I'm probably not as good as you, but I mean, it's like. It's even harder for me, and I even had some formal art training. Yeah, I did art, mm-hmm. art instruction school, draw tippy, and all that stuff. Uh, oh, that's cool. Yes, I did. Uh, that's awesome. So, took me four years have, to do it, but I did do it. So <laughs> I, I have I have one of the correspondence books uh, from one of the fifties uh, courses uh, that I that I bought off of eBay like a decade ago, right. and I basically went through and did all the lessons. Yeah. In it. So <laughs> even though I can draw more realistic, and I can't say I was ever like Neil Adams, it's still kind of comes out more like Sergio Aragonés at the best. (laughs) I I, I, I can do it. I'm actually working on some samples uh, right now to give to American Mythology Uh uh, because uh, Underdog is quarterly, so uh, I still have some holes in my schedule, so I I really would like to do some of the Edgar Rice Burroughs stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm I'm putting together some samples of of the uh, um, Carson Napier, the Venus stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we'll see we'll see what they what they say about that. <laughs> uh, and then I uh, in a couple months I'm going to start doing some cards in in a 
more realistic style uh, for uh, upper deck. Well, I'm glad you have that versatility there, you know, like I said. But then, you know, in my line of whatever I do is like I, I you know, realized I liked writing more than drawing. And so, you know, I just kind of moved away. And, you know, I did do a few comic books over the years, but, you know, drawing was always kind of a means to an end. It's like if I couldn't find somebody else to draw it, I'll do it myself, said the oh, little okay. red pen. But, you know, oh, it's, sure, right. you know, but it's basically, you know, the the, the kind of the... Charles Schultz way of drawing characters. You put them two characters standing behind a wall, so you don't have to draw right, their exactly. bodies. You know, exactly, it's the cheater exactly. way, and there's no backgrounds. You know, so sure, you, sure. you know, it's like so that's the way I draw. You know, it's like because right, yeah. I just want to get the idea across. I want to get the jokes across, and there's yeah. only any sort of background if it's needed for the joke. You know, or whatever. Oh, yeah. I, what, one of the things it, I'm glad you say that actually, because one of the things that really draws me not only just to cartoon to Bigfoot cartooning. Uh, but also to people that really know how to do little foot uh, cartooning well, <laughs> is that it, what you're really doing in a cartoon, especially in a comic strip where you really don't have much space at all, but, it, but this is true even in comic books, I think, you're basically doing a stage play with minimal set design. So yeah. my approach to backgrounds and everything, you don't have to be George Perez every single time. And that's not a, a an affront to George because I love his stuff. Yeah. But for most stories, you don't have to be hyper-detailed like that. You need enough stuff so you can establish, oh, we're in someone's kitchen or we're in front of the Statue of Liberty or, you know, we're in downtown Washington, D.C. or wherever. Uh, And and that's one of the things that really appeals to me about comics is that's part of the puzzle of figuring out the narrative is what what elements can you really reduce something down to yeah. that you can show the minimal amount of things yeah. but still suggest a lot of other stuff and still get people's minds to think, oh, that's a you know a Victorian you know mansion or whatever it is that you're uh, what you're, whatever it is that you're drawing. Right. Well, that's why I am a minimalist. There we go. Now, now that sounds yeah, official it, and sophisticated. Well, yeah, it's Alex Toth, uh, you know, said simplify, simplify, simplify. You know, eliminate everything you can, and then just draw the hell out of what's what's left. Uh, and and that's one of the things that Alex is another one of the artists I've really studied. Uh, at looking not only at him, but then you know he was a big uh, champion of Milton Kniff and Frank Robbins and Noel Sickles and all those guys. And so that caused me to become huge fans of Milton Kniff, and I'm a huge Jim Aparo fan, and Jim was a huge, uh, uh, Milton Kniff was a huge influence on Jim. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what's funny to me is to kind of construct the DNA of my heroes and see, oh, Aparo draws Bruce Wayne in a certain way because that's exactly how Milton Kniff drew Steve Cannon. Uh, you know, it, it, that that kind of stuff is fascinating to me. <laughs> now, have you ever uh, found, I mean, a lot of people say Kniff was an inspiration. Uh, I could probably look it up, but I mean, do we know who Kniff's inspiration was? Was it somebody like... I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, I should know this because I read R.C. Harvey's uh, huge, uh, you know, encyclopedia-sized uh, novel yeah. that he wrote about uh, Kniff, mm-hmm. uh, and I can't remember who it is. Okay. It's one of them is the guy that uh, painted the uh, uh, the Uncle Sam poster. You oh. know, oh James the, Montgomery Flag, yeah, <laughs> yes James Montgomery Flag. But yeah. he was a very popular influence of a lot of the artists. Right. Um, 
uh, of that era. But uh, he was also pretty heavily influenced by Noel Sickles, who was a studio mate for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, a lot of Milt's shadow work, I think, comes directly from uh, from sharing a studio with uh, with Sickles. Mm-hmm. And, and they both also. Uh, I think it's called the Landrin School. I, I have the book somewhere, but in the twenties there was like a male. Uh, we were talking about correspondence courses before. Mm-hmm. There was there was a uh, there were two different ones. Chester Gould did one of them, and Milton Kniff did the other one. And, and I think Landrin School of Cartooning is the one uh, Milt did, and I can't remember what the other one was that, that Chester did. Chester Gould. Um, but they those had a pretty big influence. I uh, I got a, 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 a recent reprinting of the Landrin School one a couple of years ago, and took it with me when I was on vacation. It basically just said, "Well, I'm on vacation this week. I'm going to do every lesson in this book." <laughs> and uh, you can definitely see where cartoonists from the 20s and 30s, like Chester Gould and, and uh, Al- uh, uh, Arnold Gray, the or Harold Gray, rather, the orphan Annie guy, right. where the, where their influence comes from because it came from this school oh, that okay. they all that they all uh, you know that they all did. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of funny. They all really strove for the same uniform kind of cartoon style. You know, nowadays people complain when you draw like somebody else, right? And you know, eighty years ago, that was the goal <laughs> yeah. was to draw like somebody else, right? Well, also, yeah, to uh, draw more realistic. I mean, it's like you know, we will delve into the more cartoony stuff, but it seemed like it took a while to get like uh, newspaper strips to get really cartoony. I mean, there was a few along the way, but even then, oh, yeah. you know, things like Crazy Cat and uh, Tunerville Trolley, let's say, that are more cartoony, still had pretty elaborate backgrounds. And you oh, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. The, if anything else, it was just the figures themselves were cartoony. Everything else was fairly uh, hyper realistic. Uh, in, in I, uh, I recently been looking through the uh, uh, Floyd Gottmuller uh, Mickey Mouse daily strip collections mm-hmm. and I'm blow- I've never seen them before and I'm just blown away by the amount of detail he was able to put into those right. uh, into those strips I mean it's, it's amazing uh, but yeah you're right cartoon strips everyone you know there, there were a lot of parameters with which everyone seemed to operate right and then um, you know once peanuts took off in 19 well probably not immediately but you know once it took off let's say in the 60s more than 1950 yeah. but you know then everybody kind of more simplified you talk about mickey yep. mouse you know, he, yep. even if it was the same guy still doing it you know floyd godfordson it was very streamlined way of doing it there's not these big adventures as gag a day just simple cartoons and oh yeah you know. yeah and you know the the most elaborate uh, one I can think of off the top of my head is like Nancy, you know, going from Fritzy Ritz down to you know the the right. simplest the simplicity that Ernie Bushmiller put to things on yep. later strips and things like that. But yes, <laughs> yeah, they, they really kind of just strip strip everything everything away. <laughs> and what was funny was that not all the cartoon strips were doing that because obviously, uh, like High and Lois, even though it's a fairly cartoony style you know dick brown really especially on the sunday pages just went to town in terms of you know a master class and how to do cartoon rendering of trees and bushes and you know uh, grass on a hill somewhere right. things like that 
But of course, uh, there's stuff that never simplified, like Prince Valiant, you know, right. going from Hal right, exactly. Foster to John Cullen exactly. Murphy or whatever. You know, it's like, they, you know, exactly. they kept the, the quality up there. But, you know, I hate to say it, all you Prince Valiant fans, I always thought that was a boring strip. <laughs> but anyway. I, I, I did too. It's incredibly cool to look at. Yes. I, 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 and I've, I've looked at many of them, but I have no idea what the story is because <laughs> I don't read them because the art is so overwhelming that it... Uh, yeah, it, it kind of blows you away. The, the, the best one, I think this is in Madden, I think Wally Wood did it. It, it was just a four-panel thing, and it said, Our Story, and it shows a picture of, like, uh, Prince Valiant kind of slumping down in a chair, taking a nap, and they just drew the same picture four times in a row. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, and I think you're right. I think it was Wally Wood that did that. <laughs> yes, that is. <laughs> yes, that's, that's exactly. And I go, yeah, that's my opinion of a Prince Valiant right there, you know. But anyway, <laughs> yes. Well, it, it's just it's. And this is probably a podcast for another time, but it's 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 a shame what they've done to newspaper comic strips. Yeah. When I look at Jim Keefe, uh, I friends with him. On Facebook, and when he posts the uh, the Flash Gordon stuff, yeah. I'm like, you know, Flash Gordon is a concept that even today should still be incredibly cool, and a lot of people should want to read it. But the the space in which they've been forced to try to operate, it's like trying to put a full orchestra into the you know into the uh, it, uh, music shell at your local high school or something, or you know a garage I mean? band or something. Yeah. Uh, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just, just it's not going to work. Yeah. No. Uh, and of course, everything, uh, at least in a newspaper, is now postage stamp size frames, and it's like exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, uh, it, yeah it, it's just it's 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 crazy because all that stuff I think really could uh, really could just have such a fantastic life, especially even if, if they hired people today who, instead of taking a quote unquote new take on it, really just kind of did a. A uh, you know, kind of scrape some of the barnacles off and mm-hmm. just kind of give it a new coat of paint and and reintroduce it. Right. Uh, I think that would have a lot of credibility. Now you mentioned you know you have comic art in the American mythology books, but have you had anything in the newspapers over the years or a strip? Or I have. I have not. Uh, okay. I uh, Dick Loker. Um, I was very good friends with him. Uh, he was the guy that drew Dick Tracy. Right. Um, right before Joe Stanton took over. Uh, and, and Dick had drawn the strip for, you know, I can never remember if it's 25 or 30 years or something. Right. Yeah. Uh, but he, when he was retiring, uh, apparently had plans that me and a couple of other guys who uh, were friends with Dick were going to, he was going to slowly kind of transition the strip to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were going to do it, and I was going to pencil it, and Jim uh, Brosman was going to ink it, and my buddy Jeff Kirsten was going to write it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for whatever reason, the Chicago Tribune <laughs> had no interest in doing that, mm. um, and instead went uh, with Mike Curtis and Joe. Right. Uh, so I, that's the closest I've come. Uh, I would give my left arm, because my right one is what I draw with, <laughs> uh, to, to work on, a, on one of the strips. Mm. And if... If if the newspaper gods came to me and said you could draw one strip for the rest of your life, uh-huh. it would be super hard for me to pick between uh, one of the three, uh, either Dick Tracy, Shu, or um, Hagar the Horrible. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> uh, and, and three more different art styles I can't imagine. Yeah. But even so, Shu uh, is more elaborate than Hagar usually is. Right, so yeah, right. Like, uh, yeah. And, and McNelly is just one of my absolute favorite, oh. uh, favorite artists. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it, it would be 
uh, I, I offer to Gary Brookins once a year to, to help him out with shoe if he needs it or, or pluggers. Um, and he always very politely turns me down. Uh, well, I know Mike and Joe are currently doing well with Dick Tracy. I did interview Mike Curtis on a podcast. It hasn't aired yet, but I mean, it will by the time this one goes up. So check it out. We actually did an early Dick Tracy 90th anniversary show because it's going to oh, cool. be double duty because I'm writing an article for Hogan's so I needed to, invite, to interview Mike anyway, so we did it that way. Oh, cool. That's very cool. <laughs> and I've interviewed Joe before, but not in a while. It was mainly about Scooby-Doo when I did, so. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So he's Joe, as versatile yeah. as you, so it's like, Joe, you know. It's, well, yeah. actually, Joe, there's two artists who I really, I, I don't ever hardly mention them, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. But, I, uh, you know, when people ask you about your career, like, they're always like, oh, you're going to be famous, you're going to do this. And I, you know, my goal has never been to, Jim, to be like Jim Lee or Todd McFarlane or, or John Byrne or one of those guys mm-hmm. I've always thought if I could be like Rick Burchett or Tom Mandrake or Joe Stanton yeah. and just be and even Aparo to a large uh, extent they were the workhorses right they were the guys that did all the monthly work that no yeah. one else wanted to do and they had careers and good careers yeah. and, uh, and it worked steadily that's all I want yeah, <laughs> you know? well, yeah Joe Joe is great and his career is great I mean he, he'll he talk at length about E-Man or Scooby-Doo or Dick Tracy and you know oh, those right. are exactly. three distinct eras exactly. that are completely different exactly <laughs> yeah. and, and Joe you know Danny O'Neill kept Joe really busy in the 90s which was kind of my golden age of comics right and, and you know so Joe was drawing you know one month he'd be doing you know uh, Batman Shadow of the Bat in his more realistic kind of you know Guy Gardner style right and then the next month he'd be doing the Batman Adventures annual with Terry Beatty and the, you know the Bruce Timm style and they were both fantastic yes. it was <laughs> Uh, it was great. I I really would uh, if his inker ever needs a break or whatever. I would love to just take a, a couple months and ink Joe on Dick Tracy. <laughs> I think I would have a lot of fun with. Well, that. I know her. It's Shelley Plager. She actually lives here in Oregon. She's not oh, too far. Really? I'll, I'll oh, go cool. knock on her door. And say, hey, give Matt a chance. You need, <laughs> well, you need, a, you need a vacation. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she has a Facebook friend. Actually, she's a really good artist in her own right. Uh, she did the cover of my. Uh, best of Harvey Bill Fun Times. I don't know if you've seen that book. Oh, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Oh, and, I didn't know that. She did that cover for it. Oh, that's yeah. really cool. And she did a page in my Beatles book, uh, which is a cute picture of the Beatles circa 69. And it's titled, I just looked at it today because I was showing someone in the book earlier today. Uh, Maxwell Silver Hammer. And basically, all the other Beatles are clobbered on the heads. And it shows Paul holding a hammer. <laughs> so, oh, that's really, that's really cool. So. Yeah, she's good at caricatures and everything, but she just does the inking. But she loves it. it you know, she has the ball with does it. Does she do the? I think she does the lettering too, doesn't she? Uh, or does yes. someone else do the lettering? Uh, and yeah, she does the lettering. Uh, somebody else does the coloring. Um, yeah, I, I know. That, I know it's like a three or four person operation. I'd have to re. I'd have to re-listen to the podcast of that person's name. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. Sorry, but uh, uh, yeah, it's all about Dick Tracy. So if you're a fan, you know, uh, it was intentionally to be solely about Dick Tracy. So um, cool. Because if you know. You're, uh, Go ahead. Uh, oh, I was going to say, uh, uh, if you're looking for someone else to talk about Dick Tracy, too, uh, the museum, uh, the Chester Gold Dick Tracy Museum uh, board president, Jeff Kirsten, okay. uh, he knows the entire history of Dick Tracy, and he is, I'm going to say, going to be Chester Gould's official biographer okay. someday. Okay. 
Um, well, that might be good because, like I said, this article isn't just, it, it's about Dick Tracy, so, and I have a couple years to prepare it, so cool. uh, uh, I might do a podcast chat. with him. So I'll have all these Dick Tracy podcasts, you know, you can skip over. Well, and Jeff, uh, Jeff could help you get insight into the script because he writes the historical essays for all the IDW reprints. Oh, I see, yeah. Mm-hmm. For the strip, uh, and so he's really delved into Chester's archives and also Colonel McCormick's archives, and uh, he's discovered some interesting things about the strip. He'd, he'd probably be a pretty good interview. Oh, okay. All right, very good. I'm always looking for new people to interview and stuff like that. And I don't mind talking about Dick Tracy. Admittedly, it's not my favorite strip, but I've always been intrigued by it. And, you know, I've read a goodly amount of them, but usually it's like in those old compilations they used to have, you know, Dick oh, yeah, Tracy's yeah. Greatest Cases, Greatest those type of things. Yep, so, yep, you know, yep. I haven't gone to through the I, year-by-year books like they have now, but, you know, it's I, like... One of my one of my goals in life, uh, especially since IDW is doing all kinds of team ups and they have the Dick Tracy license at the moment, mm-hmm. would be to do a Golden Age Batman Dick Tracy team up. So draw like the Dick Spring kind of Batman with the kind of fifties Chester Gould uh, Dick Tracy, mm-hmm. and you could you could do a total out of continuity story and like team up the Joker and Flat Top or whatever uh, and have them you know go to town. Or, yeah, or well that that was one thing Mike Curtis talked about. He has done some guest appearances like he actually had the spirit show up so you oh, know yeah, yeah. yeah so he's he's doing things like uh, he's very well versed about the history as well um but he has a diverse enough background even more it, not worse but even more diverse i'll say that in a nice way than joe staten you know he was a movie oh, yeah, theater manager yeah, he worked as a host on, a ghost host or whatever on a yeah. horror TV show. Yeah, he, was, he was a cop for a while. Yeah. I think. So uh, I, and, he, he's also he's also a, a fairly successful self small press publisher. Yeah, and that's where uh, I met him. Well, also through Richie Rich. He was writing Richie Rich stories in the eighties, and so that's where I first met oh, him. Oh, I didn't. Yeah, I, I did not know. Yes, oh. uh, he was one of the first uh, writers that they hired when the original company. You know, was reorganizing in the early '80s, and when he came back, he wrote some new stories, and they continued on into the '90s. Did some of those new kids in the block stories and things like that. (laughs) Oh wow! And he didn't say this in the interview the other show, but uh, he said that was so frustrating to do writing about new kids on the block until I decide I'm going to write stories about the monkeys. And then suddenly stories came springing to life. <laughs> they, made, they made perfect sense to me. <laughs> so, you know, you just have to change the character. So if you're, you're like, working on something, oh, I don't like this character, but, oh, now it's Underdog? Okay, now I can, I can do that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so. Well, I, I always treat Underdog in comic book form. Yeah. Basically, is the Wayne boring Superman from the fifties, um, and and well, you guys, as I'm sure you know, Joe Harris said part of Underdog's origin is kind of the George Reeves Superman, which is who basically the Wayne boring Superman is. Yeah. Um, you know, from the I Love Lucy episode, right, right, uh, yeah. With, and that's you know part of the pedigree, right. Uh, and so I, and, and especially when when. I heard Joe say that. I was like, of course, that makes perfect sense, yeah. right? Well, I interviewed uh, all four guys. I'm sure you've read my book, right? You know, I have, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. so and unfortunately, they're all gone now. And yes. uh, In fact, I think everybody I interviewed for that book has now gone? I'm trying to think. Um, I, that, because Bradley Bulky just passed away, just, you know, you know yes. and it's like, uh, you know, but all the four of them, I think Joe Harris was the last one. He died two years ago, and it's like, you know, Oh well, you gotta go sometimes. But I'm always happy when I did that book that they were all 
alive and aware and yes. had great memories and were very yes. talkative and everything. So it, it, yeah, no, it, that's one of the reasons why I love that book is because yeah. it, it, yeah, no, they, there's, there's no loss of recollection or anything like that. It's, yeah. they kind of tell the story exactly how it was. I, I mean, somebody, it, it was Chet Stover told that story uh, and I put his version in about the I Love Lucy episode. Oh, okay. And I will say, I, I, I will say I, this, I, I won't name the name, but uh, a, a very hardcore I Love Lucy fan, uh, no, excuse me, a very hardcore Superman fan quibbled about that episode of how his recollection was, and I go, this is this man's recollection. I'm not going to change his recollection, and we get the gist of it. It was Superman on Lucy, and he got the idea for Underdog. That was the gist of it. But he was going on about, you know, it's like, well, that's not what happened in Superman. It's like, it's an Underdog book. It's not a Superman book, and it's the guy's recollection. I mean, I will change something if I'm interviewing somebody, like, and this actually happened in the book, is uh, when I interviewed Bradley Bulky, he kind of remembered that there were 70 two episodes of Tennessee Tuxedo. Well, there weren't. There was actually 70, so I corrected it without telling him. I just did it because, you know, you don't remember how many you did. You know, you just kind of had 72 in the mind, so... You know. and, the, and the thing is, I, people nowadays are more aware of keeping historical records and things like that. Right. For all those guys, it was a job. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and for Chad, it wasn't like he was uh, religiously watching Superman or uh, I Love Lucy. I mean, the, the recollection was he was walking in the room, I think, if I remember correctly. And, you know, he just happened to see it on, and it was yeah, the episode right. that Superman was on. And he it's said, right. you know, because the, the whole deal was uh, they gave this cryptic note is uh, they needed a new character after Tennessee Tuxedo and uh, they said uh, uh, stay away from certain characters and they were kind of referring to frogs you know Mm -hmm. which Jay Ward was doing Hoppity Hooper and that's what they were referring to and they said and try to make it something super you know and so that was kind of a hint already you know that you know we should probably do something with heroes or something with you know? heroes. yeah right. yeah yeah and it kind of came out of that and you know it's like so i get the story you know um let's see what i was going to ask you i mean you're a big fan so how did you become a fan of underdog was it the tv show or the comic books or both it, it was a, it was the tv show i i grew up and still live in the chicago area mm-hmm. and uh the, like the first thing I remember seeing on television uh, it is uh, whatever package they were running of Underdog, Tennessee Tuxedo, and King Leonardo. Okay. Um, they, they basically would intermix all three shows mm-hmm. in whatever syndication package that they had. Right. Um, and I, I just I fell madly in love with Underdog. And uh, that was right around the time I saw the Christopher Reeves Superman movie. Oh, yeah. Um, and then also ch- uh, Channel 9 in Chicago on, I think it was on Saturday mornings, used to run the George Reeves Superman show. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, Superman was a pretty uh, awesome thing to me. And then when I saw Underdog, that became my more favorite thing, because of course Underdog was cartoony and fun and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so I I would watch it uh, on, uh, when I came home from kindergarten or in the afternoons or whenever it was on. And uh, it, it, I just, I loved it so much. It was, it was fantastic. And of course this was in the, early 80s like late 70s early 80s so there were no underdog comic books there were it was just the cartoon show that was that was all that was out um and it was kind of a bonding thing for me and my dad too because he watched king leonardo and odie when he was a kid <laughs> yeah um and so it was kind of cool to be able to uh, to, to do that stuff i'd really like to if american mythology wanted to do it i would love to do a uh, king leonardo odie the hunter 
yeah. just like a big special yeah. of all of them together. Yeah, um, I, I would I wouldn't mind writing for those either. But also, I, I would we, love we, to have. And unfortunately, Shout Factory didn't want to do this. I wanted to do a King Leonardo DVD set, and for some they reason, they should. balked at that idea. They said, "Oh, I, nobody remembers that." And it's like, okay, they do fine. because <laughs> they used to inter, the they used to. In the syndicated packages, yeah. they would uh, one of the ones with Tennessee Tuxedo had the King Leonardo stuff mixed yeah. into it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think the people that remember Underdog in Tennessee and all those guys would remember uh, King Leonardo. I, I actually pitched twice, and they still won't bite on it. Um, teaming up Underdog and the Hunter mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Riff Raff and uh, the Fox. No, okay. Riff Raff. Riff Raff and the Fox steal the Statue of Liberty or the Constitution, either one. You know, some symbol of America, and it throws the country into chaos, and they all think it's great. Hmm. And it's up to Underdog and the Hunter to kind of hunt them down and, and uh, save the day. That's interesting why they wouldn't accept that. I mean, it's like... Well, my idea is that they all exist in the same universe. Yeah. Uh, because, and I would argue, even though this is a big no-no, that the Jay Ward people do, too, because they were all animated by the same people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> It was the same people drawing them all. <laughs> right, right, right. But, you know, you know from my book, though, that uh, Underdog was originally supposed to be a spinoff of The Hunter. It never happened. Uh, they right, did. Yes. They did write a script for it, apparently, but I've never seen it. Maybe it was just a story pitch. But, I mean, they, once they created the idea of Underdog, it, it, they realized it could just stand on its own. It could so, be its own thing, right? Yeah, yeah, so they didn't bother to do that, because Hunter wasn't that well-known, so it's like they said, eh, yeah, let's just do our own thing, which I think is the better way to go, because I don't know, Hunter's kind of, I like it, but it's kind of a one-dimensional character. He, he, he is. <laughs> uh, and when, uh, when I wanted to team up one of the King Leonardo people with Underdog, he was the one I went to, because he seemed the blankest of the slates. <laughs> you know? and, and he's, he's He's. I think he's a really good shell of a concept that yeah. if you if you nudged him, because I think he's a pretty funny character by himself. Yeah. But but because he's just kind of who he is, if you push him in just a little bit different direction, like if you if you really played up like the guy, if you played up noir like how uh, you know Guy Noir from uh, NPR, mm-hmm. uh, if, if you if you kind of push the noir thing a little bit more, yeah, uh, with his private eye thing, I think that would I think that would make him a little more. Yeah, uh, if they ever did a reboot of Hunter, yeah, they would have to do it that way. Because, I mean, the way it came out, it's basically, hey, we have access to Kenny Delmar. I mean, basically, yeah, right, they, yeah, just wanted yeah, to, right. they just wanted a voice that sounded the like boy, Kenny right. Delmar, but, but then they found the real guy. Yeah, and right. so it's really just based on him, you know, and it's like, that's not really a character. Even right, Senator Claghorn that he was doing wasn't really a character. Well, no, he's just a voice. <laughs> you know, and, and Foghorn Leghorn wasn't really a character, but he became more of a character because they fleshed him out with other characters on Looney Tunes, but, you know... you know, because well, they had to, because he's a one-episode kind of guy otherwise. Right, so, you know. you know, so I was never enamored with Hunter. I just kind of said, well, it's another cartoon, but, you know, like you, uh, I think... I, it's a toss-up with me. It's either Tennessee Tuxedo or um, Underdog is my favorite total television character. Uh, I... I- yeah, Tennessee is pretty fantastic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, but oh, uh, and that was that was part of uh, part of my uh, team up with uh, the Hunter and Underdog. Mm-hmm. 
in order to figure out part of the plot, and I hadn't figured out what the MacGuffin is yet, they have to go to Mr. Whoopi, who gets out the 3D BB, and I thought that would tie everything in together. It would be fantastic, right? Well, it would be great to create, like, a whole, like, you know, if they were smart, but nobody seems to be smart that's in power of these things, I'll just put it out there to the universe and maybe this will happen. If, uh... NBC Universal, which owns uh, DreamWorks Animation, which owns Classic Media, which owns the Total Television characters, uh, were smart. They would do a non-CGI Total Television movie that would have all the characters interacting together with a great story that would be a 90-minute thing that would reintroduce all the characters that we all know and love together. But and, and they could animate it super cheaply because Underdog and all the rest of them, 1960s animation is basically what we would consider nowadays animatics. Yes. And you could totally do Underdog looking exactly like he did. Actually, you could make yeah. him look a little sharper. Yeah, you just do a flash animation type thing. And, yeah, but exactly, not so bouncy and, head, but, you know. Yeah, yeah no, no, no. <laughs> but, but exactly. You could, I mean, it, it would be, oh, my gosh, it would be so easy to, to, to do. But and all they have to do is hire a couple of guys like us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know? But you know how it'll come out, and we've seen the results of it—the live-action uh, yeah. underdog movie that we don't want to talk about. <laughs> uh, the, that, that's the I I I I won't. You know, if you can't say anything nice. But my <laughs> the, the, the the thing that the underdog movie gave me, which I can never take away from it. Oh. That's that's how I met Joe Harris. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I had read an interview with him. It was a I, there was a box set or something maybe coming out right before the movie debuted or something, or maybe it was when they announced the movie. I forget. But yeah. uh, a paper in Tennessee had interviewed Joe, and I had read it because I had a tickler for you know underdog on the news search. Mm-hmm. And uh, I contacted the journalist that wrote the article and said, "Hey, would you mind giving me Joe Harris's email? You know, I'm a big Underdog fan. I want to pitch a comic book. IDW Publishing's interested. It would be really cool if Joe got involved." And he gave me his email address. And Joe and I had a wonderful pen pal-ship for oh, a couple okay. of years mm-hmm. um, as a result of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I—that's I, the only thing I will say nice about the Underdog. Movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, Joe didn't like it either. I mean, if you no, read, he did not. read my book, <laughs> it was. Buck Biggers constantly supported yes. it, but then he was the one who kind of instigated it, and I think he got money from it. So he had a, a vested interest, whereas Joe, uh, as usual, he, he was always kind of like the sad sack of the four. He, he was. was like, <laughs> he, he was. always acted like, uh, they didn't tell me uh, we were stopping production, we it just happened, right. you know. Whereas right. Buck said, oh yes, we had a meeting, we and we, yeah, yeah, they probably had a meeting and Joe wasn't there. <laughs> it was yeah, probably I, just him and Chet. <laughs> I, I, I get the feeling sometimes that Joe you know, was just busy, just nose to the drawing board yeah. all the time. Yeah. And, and lots of things happened around him that they yeah. assumed he was uh, knowledgeable of that he wasn't. So I always compare him to, like, the Beatles. Is like, uh, Joe was like the Ringo, you know? It's like... Yeah, yes, he was. Absolutely. absolutely. And, well, and it turns out that's even more true because, uh, you know, he was the last one to, you know, to go. And I think Ringo's going to outlast McCartney. Oh, probably. So, yeah, but... yeah. so you know, 
know, that analogy works much better. Yes, than, uh, but he was also the last to join, which I believe Joe was the last to join of the four, you know, I, of the yeah, four owners. Right. So, you know, yes. it's like... <laughs> I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, think now, for my background, I'll just say this, because some things I didn't put in the book, I don't know if I did or not, but it was my exposure to Underdog was, uh, it was still on Saturday mornings because it was the early 70s, and it was on okay. syndicated in the weekdays in the 70s. And um, then they had the comic book, and it was the... I had the Charlton one, the first issue, and then there's some gold key ones later, and I preferred the Charlton ones because they actually adapted the stories that they did on the TV show, and I and didn't the, understand why the gold key ones couldn't do that, you know, as a kid. And the, the, the art on the Charlton ones is a thousand times better, no yeah. disrespect to the, to the Western guys, but yeah. it, it, because... Uh, as I recently found out, uh, uh, Frank Her- or I'm sorry, Frank Johnson, yeah, was Frank uh, Johnson. who was one yeah. of Mort Walker's assistants, right. he and uh, Chris Brown and actually uh, Greg Walker, Mort's kid, all worked on the book. Yeah. <laughs> so you you had you know Mort Walker type cartoonists right uh, doing that, and I I really love the uh, the stuff. I I my own cartoon approach to underdog is somewhere between the actual show and kind of Frank's version yeah. of it. Well, I think Frank uh, got it down best, you know, it's really weird, I, I do you know, too. and I, I, you know, I'm too. so glad Charlton did it right for once. I mean, the paper's dreadful, but, uh, the, uh, our, they could have given it to Ray Durgo who did a lot of the Hanna-Barbera stuff. I was like, yes. ah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, uh, and, and, well, Frank, finding out that Frank, uh, had done underdog and yeah. that he was connected to Mort Walker, which yeah. then meant boners are right. All that yeah. stuff. Yeah. I, uh, I started looking into other comics he did and he did, uh, Little Rascal and Little uh, Rascal Twins or something. He did a bunch of like Dennis the Menace style comics for yep. Charlton and a couple other publishers. And the, he he's one of those cartoonists that I really admire because he penciled, inked, and lettered his own stuff. Yeah. Uh, and he, he is just a wonderful cartoonist. That's another one of those things Underdog has given me is kind of the discovery of of. Uh, of those cartoonists yeah yeah and um yeah so the gold key series never uh, excited me i I mean i have them now but as i when i saw them as a kid i never collected them and i kind of went in and out of liking those cartoons and then somewhere along the line in the 80s uh i got really interested in jay ward because i saw rocky and bullwinkle again and uh-huh. and I, I I got it because by that time I was like 15 years old, uh, and so I got the jokes and I and I also realized something which I never thought before, um, the the Rocky and Bullwinkle shows actually did tell complete stories. I didn't realize that as a kid because I just uh-huh. would just, I wouldn't necessarily watch them every week or in order or anything, and so it would always be something happened and then say, "Join us next nope. time for this or this," There's, and it's like then the next time I watch it'd be a totally different story, <laughs> and it's like, did they ever finish whatever they were doing? You know, <laughs> it's, it's a show with a ton of setups and zero payoff. And I thought, and I thought that's the way it worked, and so I didn't like Rocky and Bullwinkle, and I realized, oh, that's why, you know, and like. Well, and imagine- 
you know, even Underdog was four parts, and sometimes you'd see the first two, or you'd see the last two, and I'd get pissed because I didn't think the other two were made or something like that. You know, so. (laughs) Well, and and back then, of course, if you didn't catch it when it was on TV, when I was a kid, not everyone had VCRs or things like that. So it's not like you were taping this. It was like, oh, I'm going to watch it. And if you missed it one day, you were mad because, like you say, you missed a part of the show, and now you'll never know what happened. Right, right. Until it cycles around. And then by that time you for, forgot about it. But, you know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, the suffering we had to do. And now I could just walk over there and watch all of them on DVD. But oh well. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but I love that. And you know, I'm so glad that Shout Factory did those when I when I did it. And I did get to interview uh, uh, Bradley and Buck Biggers one more time before they for passed. The yeah. For DVD. those. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, they, I think they did such a great job with those in the the Tennessee Tuxedo ones. And, you know all of them that they that they, yeah. that they worked on. Now that was a bit of a struggle uh, to make, and I didn't talk about this in the book because those are done years later. Uh, classic Media still owned them at the time; they hadn't been bought out. But Classic Media didn't have all the episodes, and it's really? like they wanted to put out the complete, and uh, they were like this close. This is fingers touching. Uh, yeah. This close to just saying, sorry, these episodes don't exist. It's not complete. And I said, we got to find them somewhere. I mean, they've aired, some aired endlessly <laughs> the last 30, 40 years, you know, somewhere. Right. Well, it turned out uh, then they discovered they had them. And, the, and this is what had happened. It's really bizarre. Um, Buck and all those guys sold uh, the characters to... I forgot the order. I think they sold it to... Lorne Michaels of Broadway Video first, and then he yes. sold it to Golden Books, and then that got yeah. sold. You know, so it's been sold three or four times. Right. Somewhere along the line, uh, they got uh, messed up the copies of all the cartoons. They were no longer on film; they were on uh, probably cassette, a video cassette or something. But somehow the audio got wiped somewhere. Oh no! Yeah, for like half the cartoons. And so I said to the guys at Shout Factory, I have all the audio. If you have the video, can you match it up? And they go, sure. And so I shipped off all the bootlegs I had. And so all the audio is from my bootlegs and the video is what they had. awesome. I did not know that. That is, or if I did know that, I forgot. It wasn't really publicized anywhere. I mean, this is eight years later, so I can say it. But, I mean. Yeah, that's really cool. Thank goodness, you know, for guys like you that have that. So, you know, when when the the Amazon reviews were saying, oh, this sucks, I hate this. It's like, you don't know how much effort it took to get it out the way it did. You know, it's like. It almost didn't happen. Right. Some of the bumpers we couldn't find, and so you see them, and they're kind of in grainy condition because those are bootlegs too. But they, at least right. they agreed to put them on there. And I think the only thing that they missed, uh, I think it's on the Underdog Collection, might be the Tennessee Tuxedo, is that they didn't get a couple of the King Leonardo, so they had to say, sorry, this is missing. And they really didn't have either the audio or the video, which is, or the video of it. Which is part of the reason why they didn't do a King Leonardo set. But I bet they exist if you went the bootleg market but you know all you know but uh, they didn't want to do a king leonard set i didn't push the issue after asking a few hundred times so <laughs> um <laughs> then uh so there we are so we got those two and i'm happy for them i you know there's a few hiccups on them i wish they put them on a blu-ray and redo them and blah you know but that's a whole another thing another time i really wish they would put them out on blu-ray that would be <laughs> But it's kind of weird on cartoons in general. I mean, I don't know if you hear Jerry Beck on different uh, 
podcasts and stuff like that. You know, it's like, you know, oh, the days of uh, DVDs and Blu-ray have passed, everything streaming, these studios, they don't care, and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of frustrating for us collectors. So, <laughs> Well, and I, I know that a lot of times it seems the licensors aren't really aware of the potential. Yeah. Uh, it, it, in dealing, I've had other dealings with classic media because um, in my capacity being on the Chester Gold to Tracy Museum board, mm-hmm. they, the Tribune farms, or at least used to farm out all their licensing to classic media. Mm-hmm. And so anytime we had to do something with Dick Tracy, the Tribune would just tell us to go work with the classic media people. And so many times we would pitch things that we would I didn't know that's what you were going to say. I was going to say, go fly a kite. I'll say it politely. (laughs) And then, you know, the the classic media people, we would tell them, we have a market for this. If you do this and the Tribune markets it just a little bit, you have a, you know, you no. make money. This is a this is a, a thing that we can do, and they just no, nah, they're not interested. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so frustrating. It is like, weird when, though because I, mean, I, yeah. I pitched to them and the Tribune, I, and I offered to do it for free for a year. Yeah. Uh, when CSI and all the cop shows were kind of at the height of their popularity. I said, why is there not an online interactive Dick Tracy solve? You know, Dick Tracy's the original police procedure. Right. Why? Why don't we have this? And so I, I submitted a proposal to the Tribune and said, we're going to do a, an online Dick Tracy comic strip. Here's how all you guys have to do is set up a WordPress site, do this. I will do all the writing and the art for free because we need to tie in with CSI and all that kind of stuff. And they were not interested at all. They couldn't be more disinterested. It was. Uh, so frustrating. Well, I will say this on that podcast with Mike Curtis. I asked him about the uh, infamous Warren Beatty Dick Tracy film, that you, and it was yeah. the one. Que- it was the one question that he basically said no comment. And so, but there's something to that film that has basically destroyed any spinoff. Other than the comic strip of Dick Tracy at this point. Because, yeah. because there's... I, I can't say a whole lot, yeah. I don't think. Yeah. But the contract that the Tribune... The Tribune obviously had lawyers that had never deal, dealt with licensing before. Yeah. Um, or at least were asleep at the wheel. Or Warren Beatty really... At Disney really were much better at hustling than yeah. the Tribune was. And they there's... I was told at one point that the Tribune almost accidentally gave Beatty not just like the movie rights, but the rights oh, to wow. Dick Tracy. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I so I can see why he didn't want to talk about it because, you know, so that, uh, we don't have to go any further either, but, you know, no, I'm, that's but, just a rumor. Yeah. That and that, yeah. That. And like I said, I don't know if that's correct or not, but, you know, it's like, it, it, it is kind of a shame. But, you know, going back, to, uh, going back to Underdog, it's like, it's almost the same thing in a certain weird respect. It's like, it is. Absolutely. Um, so NBC Universal owns all this stuff that classic media collected over the years. And when Classic Media had it, uh, they did okay with it, but they were already doing this bit where they were kind of getting really heavy on just promoting Rudolph every Christmas. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and only, now... Like you guys have like 1,500 licenses, and that's really yeah, the only I, one you know how to do. And, and, and when, they, when they did that, at least they put out a few Harvey things, and they put out a few, a right. few Jay Ward and Total Television things, but now there's like nothing. You know, and it's like, that's what I don't get. It's like... Um, I... 
You, I just think they're missing opportunities because Netflix and everything else, clearly there's a market. I mean, yeah. the, the, the Sherman and Peabody Netflix show, it's not everyone's cup of tea. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. But it's, you know what, I know a lot of kids, because I, I go to a lot of comic book conventions, and I, I colored a couple Sherman and Peabody stories, so I have the comics there. Yeah. Kids run up to the table and love it because they've seen Sherman and Peabody in the movies or on the on Netflix or whatever, and they 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 want to read more. <laughs> you yeah. know, they they want to do this, but the, the licensors are not interested. Yeah. <laughs> because I mean, even when I consider you know in the seventies that you know basically Underdog and all those characters were dormant. Yes, they appeared on Saturday morning. Yes, they appeared in syndication, but they're all repeats. That was right. when they had the most comic books out. That's when they had the most merchandise out. And it's like, there's nothing new being produced. Why can't they have that same mentality now? You just exactly. throw the old cartoons back on Nickelodeon or whatever channel, you know, exactly. and uh, start marketing toys. Um, I did see a Rocky and Bullwinkle pop clips. I can't stand those things because I hate the, the zombie eyes on them. But, you know, yes. it's like, yes. and I don't yes. like the square heads. But... Yeah. At least there's a Rocky and Bullwinkle and Boris and Natasha and Sherman and Peabody, so they do have those. But yes. no Underdog, no, no. Mr. And Whoopi, I, no Tennessee, no, you know, it's like. And I buy every, and like you say, in recent years it's been thin, but I buy every single Underdog thing they put out. Yeah. Not because I think they're all great, but because there's just nothing. Right. There is, you know, yeah. Nothing that they, that they that they put out I was you know the toy fair was this weekend in New York and uh, I I was looking to see if there was going to be any underdog stuff but um, nothing <laughs> yeah and uh, I don't know what the the deal is and it's like you know if NBC Universal likes to promote anything you know it's always going to be like Madagascar or the Penguins oh, or right, right. you know yep. uh, How to Train Your Dragon or yep. whatever's current and it's like well, why why not put it out all of it? You know, it's like I don't know if I was make, sitting on make, all these characters. Make money I, on it all. Yes, I don't, I don't understand licensors or I, anything like that. They just I, want it, those characters it, to die or something. Well, it's kind of funny because on the one hand, it seems to me that people that are in charge of all the pop culture mm -hmm. can figure it out. On the one hand, that smaller that having to do shows with mass appeal isn't really a requirement anymore, right? Because if right. you have a small, fervent enough fan base, you can do fine. Mm -hmm. So, and Marvel and DC could do the same thing. There's a market out there for 1980s style Batman and Superman and X-Men stories, right. right? Right. So why doesn't Marvel just say, you know what? Screw continuity, whatever. We're just going to do X-Men 80s or whatever. Yeah. And that way, all the people that think that those kind of stories with done with that kind of art style, with that kind of perspective, whatever, mm -hmm. go do it. Because if you have 10,000 people that are enough to really support a book like that, yeah. that's enough to make it go, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, that's enough to, to do it. Mm -hmm. And and the they could do the same thing like with Underdog, whatever. The audience probably isn't huge, but you could start small, and who knows, it might take off. You know, retro things come back all the time. Yeah. And, uh, well, I've even thought this, you know, in Marvel, well, since you mentioned that, but it applies to Underdog, too, is like, if everybody supposedly loves the Marvel age in the 60s, you know, that's what I'm going to go by. You know, why sure, not just yeah. start reprinting the comics in order, just on exactly. cheap, cheap paper, you know, just monthly. I mean, they could charge four bucks for it like they do now, but, you know, and and they have done that in recent times, because I've seen well, them, but they just jump around. They don't do them in order. And it's like, when we were kids, they used to. They used to have Marvel Tales, which was reprints of Spider-Man. That's how I read all my Spider-Man. I didn't John read the original 
originals. <laughs> John, Bur- John Byrne told me one time that when he was doing Fantastic Four and Alpha Flight, yeah. um, they were doing classic X-Men reprints, right? Yeah. And he, the only new thing about the classic X-Men reprints were he was doing new covers for them. Yeah. He told me his royalties on that reprint series were almost as much as his royalties on the Fantastic Four <laughs> for a book that that Marvel had produced ten or or probably fifteen years at that point yeah. uh, previous, and they were making money hand over <laughs> over yeah. fist. Marvel and DC used to realize that, that they could, you know, put a new one new story on an eighty page reprint and sell it for two bucks, and lo and behold, you make money. Yeah. I, I really think that that's DC's mindset with the, the uh, Walmart books that they're doing and stuff. Yeah, I, I've read that they're doing really well because they've expanded the line to six books now, mm-hmm. and that's basically what they are. There's a new, I think it's a ten or a twelve page story right. or something like that. Yeah, I've gotten a few. And then yeah. the rest are reprints, and you know what? Uh, uh, if that gets you know seats, people reading comics. That's... Although I wish they'd have reprints that went further back, but that's just me. Oh, I do too. I, I, yeah. I, it, it's like hey, here's an ancient oldie, but goodie from 2009. Right. I'm like yawn, right. snore. Right, exactly. Like you know, white boy. I thought we were going to show them you know the classic stuff like Neil Adams and Dick Sprang. And, yeah. You know, show show them the actual evolution of Batman. Yeah. You know and. <laughs> They don't. You don't have to show them the crazy more Weisinger yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. You show them the good stuff, the Bill Finger stuff. But. And, and so I was thinking we should reprint all the underdog. Now I will give American yeah, I, mythology kudos that they do kind of half new and half reprint. So yes. and. Uh, they do consult me, even though they don't always give me credit, but they have in the past. So I'm giving oh, myself. Oh, I did not know that. That's yeah, cool. they, they consult me and they go, "Who drew this one? Who wrote this one?" And so anytime oh, they have any credits, it's usually from me because I've given it oh, to that's, them. Yeah. That's and, really cool. And they've given me credit for credits, but they don't do it every issue. So it's like you know, thanks, James. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'll give you well, credit. I, yeah. Anyway, I, uh, <laughs> speaking speaking of the underdog comic yeah, book, yeah. the uh, the the new underdog and pals that's coming out yeah. hopefully soon uh has a couple of firsts in it mm-hmm. um it's the first multi-part underdog story done over multi-issues oh, instead of okay. you know a multi-part story in one book yeah uh, so it's a three-issue story uh it team ups all the villains or almost all the villains mm-hmm. um and it has the first double page spread in an underdog comic book oh wow um, and which was a lot of fun. I, I uh, when I drew it, when I read the script, I'm like, oh my god, this is a double page spread. And I, I emailed Mike Wolf for my editor. I'm like, this is the first time we there's been a double page spread in Underdog. This is so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, <laughs> so uh, I, I'm kind of uh, it, it's kind of surreal to me that uh, that you know the Underdog that I'm going to draw is going to be part of the canon. <laughs> That's kind of heady. Do you know how many stories you've done so far at this point? I mean, I, I get I, all the books, but I can't keep track of who draws them. I, I have done uh, one, two... I've, I've done three published underdog stories. I have two that are so far unpublished at the moment. Okay. Um, and then I also... There are two Commander McBrag stories that I've done that are not mm-hmm. yet published. Um, and I think... Because I keep begging for one, uh, that at some point when I finish Underdog number two, there's a Tennessee Tuxedo script out there for me somewhere. Because <laughs> um, I've been asking about doing that, <laughs> about uh, about doing uh, a Tennessee story, mostly because 
I, I got to ink a cover that Bill Gavin did with uh, Tennessee and Chumley on it. Mm-hmm. But I, I really want to draw Mr. Whoopi in the 3D blackboard. Right, right. <laughs> that's yeah. that's, that's a, a, a pretty big goal of mine. Right, right. I, and I don't know why, but Mr. Whoopi well, is one of my favorite. I, I would characters. love to write for all of them. I mean, I, I did get a couple published. One was an Ant in the Yardbark, and one was the Three Stooges. But it, oh, did you, I, they're pretty you, t- they're pretty tough over there, at least for writers. I don't know about artists. So do they they uh, accept your stuff pretty readily or no? Uh, it depends. Okay. I uh, it, when the publishing schedule is a little wonky sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, on the last two issues of the old Underdog series that I inked and colored, we were under the gun both times, and so I did all of the art corrections that DreamWorks wanted. Mm. And on both those issues, and this is not a reflection on, on Bill at all, because he is a brilliant cartoonist, but DreamWorks has a very haphazard approach, it seems, sometimes to the art corrections they want to do. Yeah. Some of them I totally understand, because they mm-hmm. want it really on model, and that's fine. But they randomly pick characters in the background sometimes oh. to change, and for no reason, because mm. they only slightly alter what they want. Mm. But they're they're pretty specific. Me and one of the other artists has a, have a kind of a fun contest going to see who can get a job through with the least amount of corrections. Yeah. Um, and I've only... I, I'm still waiting on three other jobs that I think shouldn't have too many in them. Yeah. But... Uh, uh, but uh, Jeff, so far, I think has the uh, has the the, the the least amount of corrections. I think he turned in an eight page job and only had like two or three things to fix. Right, because uh, my I own can... my own experience in writing, it's like you know, I yeah, I, I probably turned in like? about three dozen pitches, but no, only uh, about a third of those made it to script, and then only two have been published. So it's like I'm kind of. Oh, wow. Been lackadaisical in recent times. It's like because I've been doing like this the podcast and other projects, oh, right. but yeah. you know, I go, I don't know how to get published here. You know, it's like because that, they don't tell me that the other ones are rejected, they just don't talk about them. You know, it's like I go, what about yeah, these other 30 stories I turned in? And it's like, well, oh, yeah, oh, uh, it, it's uh, working. Uh, there's the communication is strange with DreamWorks in terms of how yeah. things go. Yeah. Um, and, and it's like one time we turned in a story and I swear to God in two weeks we had all the corrections and everything back and we, it was all good to go. Yeah. And then on Underdog and Pals 1, I think we turned in the stuff in July or August yeah. and we just finally got the pencils back in December. <laughs> you wow. know, it's... Uh, but DreamWorks, I guess, has told us they're going to do better about turning around because... Uh, yeah. Um, it would be cool if we could get Underdog, you know, going monthly or yeah. every other month or something like that. Well, we talked about teaming up at some point. But I suppose, yes, I, suppose I, I could I uh, like create some more pitches and stuff like that. Go ahead. What did you say? I'm sorry. We, no, no. I, I would like to do that because what I think we should do is um, uh, create the pitch and I'll put together a splash page, a cover, or like a, a, a little two-page sequence from it or something. Yeah. Maybe that'll whet their appetites. Yeah, because it's like sometimes I go, maybe because I'm just writing it, they don't get it, you know, what I'm trying to get across. Meanwhile, in my mind, I visualized it. I know exactly, and this would be a great story, but uh, so it just kind of falls flat. And I hate writing pitches. I can't stand it. I just like writing the story. You know, I have the idea in my head, and it's like the way I kind of write, which is... I don't know if it's unique, but it's just... It's different than I know other people write, is... Um, 
I just kind of do the stream of consciousness, consciousness writing, and I finally get to the end of the result. And I do something that Harvey Kurtzman said that he did once uh, when he used to do the Mad parodies way oh, back yeah, when, yeah. when he did the comic books. Uh, he said, and so the, I kind of emulate this. It's like he uh, used to he'd figure out what he'd want to do, like King Kong, let's say. And uh, he would figure out, like, the punchline for the whole thing. Okay. And then he would start writing from the beginning. And he, so he already had the ending in mind, so he knew where he was oh, going to so go. But in the middle, he could go anywhere because he already knew how it was going to end. And I go, that's end. a great way to write. because. Yeah, and so is. I try to write that way. And so I have an ending in mind, but I don't know how it's going to go. And sometimes when I write a pitch, you know, and then it becomes a comic book story, it goes a totally different way than I originally planned because I go, wow, this this is funnier. This works better. My approach is somewhat similar a little bit sideways i i uh john Byrne is a pretty big influence of mine maybe not in terms of actual art style but in terms of career and approach to the job and professionalism and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh but he told me and i this is pretty much how i do it he uh just writes a first draft he just stream a con like you say just write yeah. everything down and then he goes then i just let it sit for a day and then i go back it's you know over the course of a couple days or a week turn it into English, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, put it into something. And furthermore, he told me, and if I ever get to write under Doug uh, yeah. and draw it, this is kind of how I want to do it. Mm-hmm. He would just come up with a plot, and then the cover for that issue was his plot. So it was kind of like Julius Schwartz in that way. Yeah. So he would go to his editor and say, this scene happens in the book, <laughs> and mm-hmm. here's the plot. And then he said, I very loosely, for the first 12 pages just kind of every day as I'm doing my three pages, I just plot day by day by day. Mm-hmm. Then when I get to page 12, since I know how the issue is going to end, mm-hmm. then I start plotting more tightly and then get to the end. And that's when you do your subplots and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and that, that in my self-published stuff and things that I've done uh, has served me pretty well uh, doing it that way. Because I, I find I don't have the patience to sit down and type out a whole script. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times I will just thumbnail and script at the same time. Hmm. Uh, just because I can kind of do it sideways Marvel style that way. Mm-hmm. I can plot out what I want, draw it, kind of choreographic, and then do the dialogue, make sure it fits, and then move on to the next page. And, right. Uh, things like that. Now, you mentioned you self-published, so what, what stuff have you done? I did, uh, for about two years uh, at uh, Go Comics, at their Comic Sherpa site, mm-hmm. um, I did my own comic strip called Marty and Spud. Oh, okay. And uh, Marty and Spud is, everyone uh, says that it's Calvin and Hobbes, and it does <laughs> owe uh, quite a bit to Calvin, but it's really Dickie Dare, <laughs> oh, okay. which was the first comic strip that Milton Kniff worked on. And the concept of Dickie Dare was that Dickie and his little dog would be, you know, reading Robinson Crusoe or something and fall asleep and then wake up in the novel and then they get to have adventures with Robinson Crusoe and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, as a child of the 80s, that's what we used to like play when we went outside, right? We'd play Star Wars or G.I. Joe or whatever. And so I thought, what if I did a strip where, without having to say it's Star Wars or whatever, I have this little guy and his cat, and they just make believe, and you're never quite sure if it's real or not. Uh, you know, adventures, you know, that are influenced by Indiana Jones and, you know, stuff like that. Hmm. And uh, so I did an Indiana Jones parody. I did a Star Trek one. I did a James Bond one. Um, I did a Dick Tracy one. 
uh, and it was a lot of fun. And uh, it, uh, a daily deadline really consumes your life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's pretty amazing. And I had a full time job and was teaching also part time <laughs> when I was doing this, so I was really killing myself. <laughs> I think uh, I did a webcomic for about two years. I don't even know if it's still up online anymore. I didn't even think about it. <laughs> Most of Marty and Spud is not online. And yeah. I, I like the concept a lot, but I'm very particular about what I want to do with it. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, my original art approach to it was Bill Watterson penciling and Jeff McNally inking. Um, that was kind of how I wanted it to look in my head. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've really fallen in love since with Frank Johnson's artwork and also uh, Hank Ketchum's artwork on Dennis and Menace, who is also yeah. another big influence on Marty and Spud. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I would like to do Marty and Spud graphic novels, which I think I could highlight you know, a theme better, like if I do a Star Wars parody or if yeah. I do a... Uh, Justice League or whatever yeah. um, and, and do it more with that kind of a slicker kind of uh, art approach to it yeah. uh, because Hank, I've, I've become friends with uh, um, uh, oh, now I can't remember his oh, name <laughs> well, Ron Ferdinand? Uh, Ron, Ron Ferdinand, oh, okay, thank you Ron, okay. Ron I'm okay. so sorry, I forgot your name but <laughs> uh, uh, I've become friends kind of with Ron on, on Facebook and uh, he posts, you know, Hank Ketchum stuff. And right. He kind of had a relationship with a major cartoonist that I've always wanted. He was kind of like an apprentice yeah. uh, to to that. And uh, his own cartooning is fantastic. His coloring on the Sunday pages is just mind-boggling. Yeah. I, I love it. Uh, but I, I'd really like to, to, you know, do something in that kind of vein. Right. I wouldn't mind working on Dennis, actually. <laughs> well, you, you, you knew I did the Dennis book, too, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. No, no, okay. You, okay. You, I, I have read so much of your stuff okay. because you, you, you seem to hop to everything that I am interested in. in, in I just, between you and between you and Rick Goldsmith, um, you yeah. guys have covered almost every part of my childhood. Well, it's like uh, if if Rick didn't do the Rankin Bass stuff, I would have done it. You know, it's well, like I, you know. I, I have to talk to Rick because I really want him and I to team up. Yeah. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is my absolute favorite Christmas thing ever. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was, I was terrified of Santa Claus as a kid, but Rudolph was fine. Right. So right. That, that tells you a lot about the influence yeah. of cartoons and the talking reindeer didn't scare me, but a man did. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I want to do a graphic novel version of Rudolph because um, oh, okay. I don't think they've done a, a full-blown comic book adaptation of it. Mm, um, they've done children's or, books. Or have they? They've done children's books. I don't think they have done a comic book yet uh, yeah <laughs> and, and i i think that would be uh, i think it'd be really cool to, right. to uh to do or at least and, of the rank you know, or i'll i'll, I'll uh, amend that of the rank and bass version i mean yes, yes. there are yeah, no, rudolph no, yeah, comic no, no, books right, yes. yes yeah no no I, uh, yeah no, no i i should have clarified i mean the the rank yeah bass because i mean version. dc did them for years you know oh, but, yeah, no, no, yeah. Absolutely. But, but they have uh, that gopher character and all, you know those right. silly yes, elves right, and stuff. Right, yes. exactly, right, exactly. <laughs> But yeah, the, the Rankin Bass one. I I I really uh, I I think I could really draw that well, and uh, I I think it would be fun to to work on that. Yeah. I don't know if Rick's ever written comic books, so maybe uh, you and I will have to do that instead. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I that's that's on my bucket list is to draw uh, yeah. Rudolph in, in some official capacity at some point. 
I should interview him at some point, but I just haven't got to this. Like, but anyway, I, I like all that stuff. And I, part of me is like jealous, like, oh, we did the Rankin Bass thing. But, you know, it was like I said, it, it, you know, the reason why you've seen probably some of my books is because, you know, it's like I pick topics that I go, hey, there isn't a really good Dennis the Menace book that talks about the history. I mean, there's yes. ones that Hank did himself, but they're all kind of self-promoting, saying, hey, aren't I great? It's like, yeah, you had a staff of about 20 people, but yeah, you were great, you know. <laughs> And it's like, that's what I wanted to know about. I wanted to know about all the other people that worked on these things, you know? It's like, well, and and we live, you know, we live in a society now where it's not, it's not a mark against any cartoonist that you have a field of assistants that are helping you. No. Because, you know, as much as a lot of people like to complain about corporate America and all that kind of stuff, these licenses are the way these guys make money. (laughs) Yeah. That's how they put, that's how they can afford to be an artist. So whatever they need to do to, get the job done, you know, more power to him. You know, yeah. Garfield has created a whole industry right. in, in, in Indiana, and so many brilliant cartoonists have come out of Jim Davis's studio right. uh, that, you know, you, you can't really look down on that. I mean, it's wonderful that, you know, right. Schultz did Peanuts solo. Yeah, um, which turned I, out to be an anomaly because, you know, it's like right. Ketchum liked Literally. to give the impression, and that was the nature of the way Walt Disney did it, too. You know, it's exactly. like, I did everything, and it's like you find out, exactly. well, Exactly. If you did everything, how come the comic books look different than the Sunday strip? Which exactly. Different than exactly. your panel? Uh, okay. You know, and, you know, the same thing with Chester Gould. Chet, didn't do, Chet literally penciled Dick Tracy and inked the figures, mm-hmm. but someone else, his brother, was doing the lettering. You know, mm-hmm. there were, someone else did the color. Yeah. Someone, you know, he had a police guy on staff that did all the police research. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't a, a one man operation by any stretch. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, you know, and there's no shame in that. I don't think. You know, I don't but, think so either. But it's like he, everybody's programmed to believe that one guy does it all just because of the fame of Charles Schultz, and he would constantly say that I've done all these strips by myself. Strips, yeah. You know, and it's like yeah. you go, well, that's the way you do it. And then you find out, you know, that uh, they had assistance way back in the twenties and te- teens, uh-huh. way back when, hundred years ago. So it's like, yep. you know, it's just Schultz was a weird guy. <laughs> he wanted yeah, right. to micromanage his own strip, which is more power to him. But it's like, uh, you know, <laughs> I think I would have gotten assistance too later it's, on. Right. You know? <laughs> it's, it's a it's a feat of superhuman strength, and the guys that did do it solo eventually do bring out. I mean, McNally did shoe by himself for many years. Yeah. But then you know the 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 at year twenty doing a daily deadline starts taking its toll. Yeah. You know, and 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 it, you know that's and Jeff said you know when he brought on Chris Cassett and those guys that it reinvigorated his love for the strip because he could focus only on the drawing, which was the only part he really liked. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that someone else could help him with the gags and do all the you know putting it into a daily format, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and you can tell in the strip in the reprint collections too in the mid '90s when he brings other people on. Yeah. The, the I mean the strip was never bad, but it just it goes to the next level mm, okay. um, as a result of that. Yeah. I mean I guess the alternative would be and you know Schultz always kind of poo pooed this too and it's like hey you know not everybody can do what you do but you know, he kind of poo pooed both Watterson or Calvin and Hobbs and and Gary Larson for Far Side because they stopped after ten years. It's like oh right yeah. <laughs> you know it's like well, you, there's no requirement you have to do these strips for 50 years yourself you know, <laughs> you know if, if I were Bill Watterson and I kind of said what I wanted to do and the choice was I can burn myself out or I can live a pretty comfortable life and paint yeah I think I'm going to go enjoy myself yeah yeah I mean it's like uh, you know 
Uh, ten years is a good run, you know, and it's like, man, you still see the collections in bookstores, so he did something right, so it's like, right. yeah. Exactly. yeah. It, well, and it's, it's kind of like, you know, British television has figured out that you don't have to have a series that just goes on and on and on and on. Right. There's nothing wrong with telling a story that is a beginning, a middle, and an end. Right. <laughs> and just do it, you know, six good seasons is better than 25 yeah. mediocre ones, yeah. right? Although they uh, they were guilty with Last of the Summer Wine, if you're familiar with yes. that one. It went on for 30-something <laughs> yeah, yeah. years, but anyway. Right, yes. <laughs> but there's exceptions to every rule. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, but yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's kind of funny on a British series. Uh, it could go on for ten, 10 years, and yes, we got 70 episodes, and it's like, wow, you yeah. do 70 episodes in one season here, <laughs> you know? Right, right exactly. <laughs> but now we've kind of adapted the new way it's like you get like these newer yes. series like stranger things and it's like hey yes. five episodes and it's like that's it <laughs> it's like right, you know, exactly. whatever <laughs> exactly exactly but we've become trained and then we'll do our season two and, now like, three years from now it's right, like you right. Know, you know. right you know and the sopranos trained us for that right yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's so. three years in between seasons so i guess the the upshot of all of it is you know there's the rules can be broken now you know which you know it seems like comic strips as an entity just you see him in the newspaper is like basically gone uh i mean i did interview joe Waz and he does maze tunes and he says yeah most of his money is made out of the online stuff not being in newspapers and the newspapers, day, right. and the days of being in 2000 newspapers that's that's imaginary now you can't even do it there's not that many newspapers so you know it, it seems like the only way you can make any money out of it if there is a way is to do a graphic novel like you're suggesting or a compilation of stuff you've already published you know so i yeah i i, I for a lot of this stuff like i i've often thought and, of course, it's money, right, is usually the main yeah. Yeah. problem. But I think a lot of these comics, in order to really kind of drum up support for them or whatever, mm-hmm. if you have the time and if the people working on them can do it, I think, like, for Underdog, I would love it if we could, but it would cost too much money. <laughs> Prior to the release of the books, we should be doing web strips, web, kind of wetting people's appetite and then mm-hmm. keeping them interested in between issues. Even if you did just a weekly thing or something like yeah. that. And if, if there was a, you know, if you could partner up with Webtoons or one of the big apps where you could get a kind of instant audience or instant eyes on it at least. Yeah. That there's, a, there's a real opportunity between doing that patreon and kickstarter or indiegogo or whatever it is to to make money but you 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 you've got to be able you can't it's not all going to come from one source you, it's like joe says you're going to diversify a lot mm-hmm. uh, uh to do it and i i think a lot of these properties could have a decent online experience and that the cartoonists the creative teams could make a living doing them if the licensors were interested in in doing it yeah but who knows? But, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, on the one hand, I think web comics are incredibly cool, and in a lot of ways, I think we should be living in a golden age of of cartoons. And in some ways, we do. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. I just I would like to see some of the old properties still have more of a life. Yeah. Than yeah. Especially when only three companies own everything, it seems like. Right. <laughs> right. It's <laughs> Disney, uh, Warner Brothers, and. Uh, 
yeah. MGM. Yeah. Well, the NBC Universal, NBC, NBC Universal yeah. DreamWorks. That's what I call it now. I don't even yeah, know no, what to call it, but you know. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure ever. I just call them DreamWorks, but you're right. It's it's NBC Universal yeah. something. <laughs> and Archie. That's the fourth. <laughs> this is like yeah, you know, right. that's about the only independent thing left. You know, it's like there's, a, there's another series I I want to work on. Uh, I want to do Archie comics at some point too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that would be a lot of fun. I, by total accident, one of the first comic books I ever read was Cheryl Blossom's first appearance. <laughs> um, and I, you know, and she only I think appeared in maybe two or three stories, and then kind of disappeared for right. a decade. Right. And I had those comics because the first couple of comics I got were that Betty and Veronica issue, which I want to see is issue three twenty maybe, uh, and then a, a Batman versus Catman book, which had a wonderful Ed Hannigan to Giordano cover on it. <laughs> and I still have both of those. And so when Cheryl Blossom came back, when Dan Parent and Dan DiCarlo kind of brought her back in the, I think it was the early nineties. For the love triangle crossover, yeah, uh, I picked it up, and I've picked up every Cheryl Blossom appearance since. So when I work at Archie, I have to do a Cheryl Blossom story. <laughs> <laughs> and and two of my favorite cartoonists, uh, Dan Parent and Holly Golightly, mm-hmm. uh, both have worked on Cheryl. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's it's. Yeah. I have a bunch of stuff from Dan. Uh, mm-hmm. I probably have a dozen pieces of original art. I need to talk to Holly about getting a Cheryl Blossom piece. Yeah. I need to talk to Dan again. He's a good guy. I've met him a few times. So. I, I love Dan. He, uh, when I was trying to work on my inking, he sent me like a whole box full of Archie Xeroxes mm-hmm. uh, to practice my inking on it. He's given me all kinds of pointers and has been very, very helpful. He's an awesome, awesome dude. <laughs> well, let's see. Where are we here? Uh, we talked about a lot of stuff. Is there anything no, else I'm you so, want? I, I can ramble. I'm so sorry. No, that's fine. It was like, well, we were going to just talk about Underdog, which we did. So, you know, it's like, uh, I guess now it's that time of the show where we just kind of do the plugs. Uh, oh, you, yes. We've, so, got under, we've got Underdog and Pals 1 coming out uh, hopefully soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, issue 1, I believe, is, or at least my part of Issue 1 is totally done. Mm-hmm. Um and so uh, I believe there uh, it's all at DreamWorks now for its final kind of check over. Uh, and then once I get those corrections, if there are any, it's usually pretty quick after that. So I'm hoping maybe in a month or two uh, we should have Underdog. Uh, but that's Underdog and Pals number one. Uh, there's I think three different covers plus a sketch cover. Uh, so make sure you get the sketch cover so when you see me at a convention, um, I will draw Underdog on it for you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and what convention appearances are you having this oh, coming year? I uh, I uh, am doing uh, next week. So on a podcast, this will have happened in the past, but I'll still plug it anyway. Uh, <laughs> The, the first convention I usually do every year is the Northwest Indiana Con in Cherville, Indiana. Okay. Uh, and it, it started off as a smaller regional show, but it's really grown pretty big. A lot of the Chicago cartoonists come down for it. Okay. Um, and it's uh, right in the middle of Northwest Indiana, which a lot of people associate with Gary and all that kind of stuff, but it's really had a comeback. Uh, mm-hmm. There's all kinds of breweries and coffee shops and art stores and uh, awesome restaurants and things like that. So it's... Uh, it's a pretty cool area to go to. And then uh, after that, I'll be at C2E2, um, probably with the National Cartoonist Society. Um, and then um, that's as far as I have plotted out at the moment. <laughs> okay. That first one you said, is it like every February? So somebody catches yes, it yeah, later it's, on? It's okay. usually it's usually the same, the second or third week in February. Okay. Um, 
it's a one day show it's, okay. it's pretty so, cool so if you're listening in 2020 or sometime in the future yeah check it out it's probably in February <laughs> and you'll probably yeah, be no, there yeah, you'll probably be there always, right <laughs> yeah. yes it's always in February I'm always there uh, the guy that runs this show that created it uh, he and I went to high school together yeah um, so I will always be a guest at that show. <laughs> Unless you're listening to this uh, show in 2265 or something, none of us will be here. So. <laughs> right, none of us. <laughs> uh, but, none uh, of us are, uh, are around anymore. This podcast right. will live on, though, yes. Forever. And, <laughs> right. Anyway. Well, that's, um, that's immortality, right? That's yes. what we really yeah, all Yeah, that's all why I'm doing these. That's the sole reason. So I'm immortal on a podcast. <laughs> um, and uh, how can they get, get a hold of you? Do you have a website or email, Facebook? Um, uh, my my uh, website is under construction at the moment. Uh, so great. right now, the, the best thing uh, <laughs> right the best thing to do is uh, find me on Facebook. I'm at Matthew Hansel. Uh, my profile is public. My uh, avatar is the underdog logo. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you can check me out there. I post a lot of artwork. Um, or if you don't want to look at my daily rants, sometimes <laughs> uh, my Instagram is Matthew Hansel as well, and that's just art. So yeah. okay. uh, um, it's a lot of fun to uh, to look at that. I actually. Uh, prefer Instagram out of the three major media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, but that's just me. <laughs> well, you're also an artist, so you have art to show. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, yeah, pictures are my thing, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, and let's but, see. Go ahead. Um, I think that's all the I think that's all the plugging that I have for at the, at the moment. Oh, I, I, yeah. did I mention I'm doing two Commander McBrag stories? Yeah. Um, one of those is going to be, uh, or I think both of them are backups in Underdog 2 and 3. <laughs> I don't think you could get away with so. this, but I'd love it if you would do this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is, you know, the guy, uh, Commander McBrag, usually talks to the, he says, really, I must be going. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. And he he he's, It's always the same the voice but he looks completely different yes, in every yes. show. And yes. I would say it would be funny is every panel, it would just be a different guy just sitting oh, there. Yeah. <laughs> I, if, they, if DreamWorks would let me do that, I would do that because when, that was one of the things was when I went to go, I, I try to be as screen accurate as possible. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I have lots of screen caps of the episodes and stuff like that. Yeah. And that's when uh, in my McBrag file, I have a subfile of just all of the assistants or friends that he's yeah. talking to. Yeah. And it's, you're right, because it's the same guy doing the, I, I, I don't know who it is that does the voice. <laughs> but uh, he, he's, you know, sometimes he's bald with white hair. Other right. times he has, you know, jet black hair and a mustache. Yes. <laughs> I put a few in the example. I said uh, McBra a few of McBrag's disinterested friends. You know, and I just yes. had a page with like three or four pictures or something on it. Just yes. Well, and a lot of times I always think that he only ever talked to them when they were sitting in front of the globe. Yes. But in, in going through and watching, you know, all the episodes to prep for doing the art. Yeah. Uh, you know, then you quickly find out no, they were standing. Sometimes yeah. he was. Yeah, uh, was they were in a parade time. one yeah. time. It was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anyway. Oh my goodness! <laughs> he's he's just such a fantastic character. <laughs> yes, well, uh, my friend Lee Hester, who runs Lee's Comics, who did uh, my first guest on the second episode of this podcast, yeah, that's his favorite character. He thinks he's the best, and uh, he said, "I just want a compilation of that one." Although they are all available on the Underdog set, so you can get them there. But yeah, he just. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. well, it was McBrad was my first solo penciling gig. Oh, okay. um, because. I had just been inking and coloring for American Mythology, and so I emailed my editor one day uh, and said, you know, here's some underdog sample pages, and I'd really like a shot at penciling, uh, but 
you know, I've not done it before, so, you know, if there's a short story or something with a long deadline, that would be great. And Mike emails me right back. He goes, how about Commander McBrag? I'm like, so hot. <laughs> so he, he sent me the first script, was which was Commander McBrag uh, uh, talking about how he discovered the giants on Easter Island. <laughs> and his friend Medusa helps him uh, <laughs> now are these, helps him out. I do have to ask this. Are these stories longer stories, like five pages or more? Uh, no, these are three-pagers. Oh, okay, because I was thinking, you know, the the whole Commander McBrag thing was always a 90-second bit, so I was wondering yes. if you had longer stories. Yeah, know. no, they're, 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 they're three-page stories with six or seven panels on a page, so there's yeah, a lot, yeah. a lot jammed in there. Right. Uh, and, and then I had just turned in the McBrag story, and I was on the phone with Bill Gavin, who said he had just turned down Underdog and Pals 1 because he was on a super tight deadline for Archie. Mm. And he goes, but I recommended you, so maybe they're going to call you. And while I was on the phone with Bill, my editor was emailing or messaging me on Facebook saying, I need Underdog and Pals 1 done in two weeks. Can you do it? Oh, wow. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he goes, welcome to the big leagues. I'll see you at the end of July. Wow. <laughs> and that was, so it's kind of baptism by fire. <laughs> Very good, yeah. Well, I always wish... Uh... American mythology luck, and I hope they continue to succeed, Wh whether or not I'm writing for them or not, you know, but it's like, man, they well, have we, the we, most we erratic... Yes, we, we should. Sh <laughs> we, we, we should work on that, because I, I okay. would like to uh, to do an underdog special, or I really think they should do another underdog-free comic book day issue, yeah. or a uh, uh, what's the October event called? Comic oh, the book Halloween day one? Uh, the, yeah, the, yes, yeah. yeah. I think you know an underdog with uh, uh, Batty Man or with the uh, the witch. Yeah, that would be a fun Halloween yes. uh, thing mm -hmm. to do. And just have the electric eel on the side. No, I don't know. I'm just kidding. Right, <laughs> right exactly. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you today. It was great we will, talking to you we, too. we will talk offline about getting some work together done and get some underdog yes. stories out there. And uh, I want to thank you for being my podcast guest today. Thanks. Thank you for inviting me. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for listening, and thank you again, Matt Hansel, for being my special guest. Episode number 35 will be coming soon. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2019 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you very much, and have a good night.